Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. You know, it's been said, you can exist for weeks without food. You can exist for days without water. You can exist for seconds without air. But you can't live without hope. Hope keeps your soul alive. Now, most people don't understand hope. Hope is not some wishful, pie-in-the-sky thinking about the future. You need hope now. You need hope today. You need hope not because you're going to die tonight, but because you've got to get up tomorrow and live. And hope is not optimism. You know, optimism is psychological. Hope is theological. Optimism is trust in yourself. Hope is trust in God. Optimism is what you think you can do. Hope is what you think God can do. Optimism can be a denial of reality a positive Pollyanna attitude that says the sun will come out tomorrow. But the reality is maybe the sun won't come out tomorrow. Now, it's not that optimism is bad. It's just that sometimes optimism denies the fact that, yeah, life really is bad at particular moments in time. Hope never does that. Hope deals with reality. Hope says, yep, it's bad. It's really bad. It's the worst I've seen. But I believe God is in control. And he can bring us through this. You know, in our nation right now, people are struggling, not just physically, but emotionally, financially, and in all sorts of other ways. And maybe you're starting to feel a little hopeless yourself. Like, it'll never change. It's just going to get worse. Now, the reason we need hope is because we live on a broken planet. We're seeing this clearer than ever in the midst of this coronavirus. An invisible enemy has taken the wind out of our sails. It's knocked us down and stretched our medical facilities, healthcare workers, the stock market, the unemployment rate, and on and on. The truth is, because of sin, this planet is out of order. You can look around and see brokenness everywhere. Grieving families, broken lives, broken marriages, broken homes, broken dreams. So where do you find real hope at a time like this? Only one place. You get it from what we're here for this morning. You get it from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the most important event in all of history. Every time you write a date, you use Jesus as the focal point. When you write April 12th, 2020, what is that? 2020 years from what? From when Jesus Christ split history into BC and AD. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you still refer to him every time you have a birthday. Your birthday is dated by Jesus. Nothing is more important than the life and resurrection of Jesus. And nothing is a greater source of hope. And so today, I want us to look at what the Bible says about hope. In particular, I want to talk to you today about two people in the Bible who were surprised by hope. Now, a lot of people know the general outline of the Easter story Right on the first day of the week, that Easter Sunday, some women ran to the tomb and it was empty. There was an angelic visitation. They went to go tell the disciples and the rest is history. 
But this is a lesser known story in the Bible. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And it doesn't come at the beginning of Easter Day. It comes at the end of the day. Because sometimes hope comes to you early, but sometimes hope comes late. Why it came late for this couple may have something to say about your life and your hope and God in your story. So this is the story of two people for whom Easter came late. Luke writes, Now that same day, Easter Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. This is a fascinating story about two members of that little community of people who were following Jesus. And what we're going to find out in a moment is that one of them is named Cleopas or Clopas. Now over in the Gospel of John, it says there was a woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was present when Jesus was crucified. Bible scholar Tom Wright, who's written extensively on this particular story, he says that most likely these two people on the road to Emmaus were that husband and wife, Cleopas and Mary. And they're trying to come to grips with what has happened. And actually, the Greek word Luke uses here can be translated, they were disputing with each other. They were arguing. So I know it may be hard for you to believe that they're husband and wife. I, I get that. But there may be some tension going on there. Yeah, we know from the Gospel of John that Mary, the wife, was present when Jesus died, but there's no record of Cleopas being there in that moment. Maybe that's part of why there's tension. We don't know. So they're trying to figure out what has happened. And while they're doing that, a stranger comes alongside of them. And Luke uses this intriguing phrase, they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. Now, we, the readers, know exactly who it is, but they don't. They're in the dark. And for some time, we don't know how long, this stranger just walks next to them. And maybe they're so engrossed in their conversation, they don't even notice him. But eventually, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And this question kind of stuns them. It stops them in their tracks. They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, where would you rate this question on the politeness meter? <laughs> what? Don't you pay attention to anything at all? It would be like someone today saying, what's the coronavirus? What's COVID-19? I mean, See, they're saying, have you been living under a rock or something? Now, at this point, the stranger could have gotten off a nice zinger if he wanted to. Well, yes, actually, I have heard of Jesus. I am Jesus. Yeah, I was there at the tomb, so I, I guess you could say I've been living under a rock. But he doesn't say anything like that. He's very polite. He simply says, what things? Right, like, tell me, what are the things you're talking about here? And they tell him about Jesus of Nazareth. Say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They're telling him their story. And everybody has a story. You have a story. And at the heart of their story are these very poignant words, we had hoped, we had hoped. Well, if you live long enough, you know about those words in your story. We had hoped to raise a great family, wonderful children and have a long life. But then the doctor said, we had hoped this pandemic would blow over, but now I've lost my job. I had hoped, and then this habit I just couldn't seem to shake got me in its grip. I had hoped, but then he told me he doesn't love me. We had hoped, and then our child went down a road we never thought she would go down. Their story was, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was going to make our story turn out okay, but our story has gone all wrong. And you need to know a little bit about their story because it relates to your story. Their story is that they were a part of a special people, Israel. And they had a destiny, they had a calling from God. Their life wasn't just about themselves. They were gonna be the servants, the representatives of God and good and hope here on earth. But their story had gone all wrong. There was no glory in Israel, just suffering. And way back at the very beginning, they were in slavery in Egypt. And then it was just one oppressor after another, Syria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and now Rome. It was a story in search of a better ending. And then Jesus came along and he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. He said things nobody else ever said. And he did things nobody else ever did. And they thought that maybe, just maybe, he would set the story right, that he would lead a kind of revolution in this world, a revolution of goodness in the human heart and overthrow oppression and the enemy and make the people of Israel prosperous and great so all the world would know that Israel's God is the one true God and that he rules as king of this world. See, they had all these hopes and things seemed to be going so well. But then all of a sudden, everything went south. And Jesus ended up on a cross. You have to understand why they were so dejected. We look at this story from the other side, but put yourself in their place. No one expected this. It's not just that he died. He died on a cross. By definition, that meant whatever they were hoping for wasn't going to be Jesus. I mean, he couldn't be the Messiah. Crucifixion was what Rome did to demonstrate that some rebel is not the Messiah, that he's not going to win. So they don't know what to do with this. Well, they go on to say this. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Basically, they're saying, we don't know what's going on. There have been all these strange reports. The women went to the tomb and said his body isn't there. They talked about seeing an angel or something. Everything's going crazy. We're just going home. And then finally, this stranger speaks up. He said to them, how foolish you are 
and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, why does he say that? Certainly doesn't sound very polite. They're pouring their hearts out to him and his response appears pretty sharp. So what's going on here? Well, he's not insulting them, all right? Let me explain what's happening. You've probably had a similar experience where you think you know what's going on. You think you understand the story you're in, but then you find out in one moment of blinding clarity that you didn't understand at all. Heard this story a while back. It was about a couple, a husband and a wife. And this man and woman, they've been married for more than 60 years. They shared everything. No secrets from each other, except the little old woman had a shoebox at the top of her closet that she cautioned her husband never to open and never to ask her about. So for all those years, he had never even thought about the shoebox. But then one day, the little old woman got very sick and the doctor said she wasn't going to recover. And in order to sort out all their affairs, the old man took down the shoebox from the closet, brought it to his wife's bedside. And she agreed it was time he should know what was in the box. When he opened it, he found two crocheted dolls and a stack of money totaling $95,000. So he asked her about the contents. When we were to be married, she said, my grandmother told me the secret of a happy marriage was never to argue. She told me that if I ever got angry with you, I should just keep quiet and crochet a doll. Well, the little old man was so moved, he had to fight back the tears. Only two dolls in that box? Only two little interruptions in 60 years of living and loving and marriage? He grew even more in love with this woman than he had ever been before. Honey, he said, that moves me so deeply. And then he said, sweetheart, that explains the dolls, but what about all this money? Where did it come from? Oh, that, she said. Well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it at a craft fair for $5. You know, I love that story because that's like the human condition. You think you know your story, but you really don't know your story. One day you will find out what your story is, but you don't fully know it now. I mean, you can wake up one day and all of a sudden I'm in another story. I'm walking down a road I never thought I would be on. I mean, that's going on right now for just about everyone all over the world, isn't it? And what happens when you find out you've gotten your own story wrong? It changes everything, doesn't it? Well, this couple had a story. But then this stranger said to them, you don't get it yet. You're disputing, it's killing you because you don't know the story just yet. So let me tell you the real story. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he says this, did not the Christ... Some versions say the Messiah. That's actually his title, not his name. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Boy, wouldn't you love to have been there for that conversation? I know I would have. I would have loved to have been there. But this stranger says, my people have misunderstood God's story and the mission of the Christ, the Messiah. There's a theme in the Old Testament that has been overlooked. 
The story the Bible tells begins in a garden, a perfect paradise. But almost immediately, it turns south. Sin enters the world. And our story becomes a story of separation from God. And as a result of that separation, suffering. Not just suffering, joy also, but joy that comes out of suffering. Joy that lives in the midst of suffering. And at the heart of this story, the primary character is this joyful, suffering God upon whom falls the weight of a broken, wounded world. And so God chooses this one people called Israel. And he says, I want to have a group of people who come to know who I am and what I want life to be about. And then he chose prophets to paint a picture of shalom or peace, the way the world is supposed to be if sin doesn't have it by the throat. A world without injustice or greed or lust or oppression. And he wants Israel to be his vehicle for the expression of this. Now, they figured that meant God would be vindicated when God's people were great, like other nations defined greatness. I mean, every nation had a God or gods, and they all figured that if a nation became great, that showed that their God was the greatest of all. So everybody thought that when Israel, God's people, became great, they would have a great army, great wealth, great power, secure borders, vast empires. You all know about this. It's the story of the world in which we live. When you have it all, when you make it to the top, when you succeed, that'll vindicate your story. Well, instead, Israel would have none of this. Their people suffered in exile. They start out in slavery in Egypt, and then it looks like they get free, but they're a mess internally. And then come all these other problems from the outside, the Philistines and the Assyrians and then Babylon and, and Persia and, and Greece and, and now Rome. But something is going on. And over the generations, over the centuries, in that suffering, in exile, Israel would come to realize that it was in being faithful to God in the midst of suffering that their calling, their destiny would be fulfilled. That that was their story, being faithful in the midst of suffering. In the beginning, this wonderful God creates a world that he loves so much, but then sin messes everything up and it becomes the hallmark of our story. It's a problem that must be dealt with, this problem of sin. And so this stranger says, now, now think about the Christ, the Messiah. What if the depth of his suffering actually confirms his identity instead of disproving it like the world thinks? What if the crucifixion is not Rome's defeat of Jesus like the world thinks, but God's defeat of sin and guilt and evil? He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Did not the Christ have to suffer? What if all of human history, the whole story finds its culmination, its perfect ending in Jesus? And then verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened, people, over dinner when he broke the bread. Maybe they saw the nail scars on his hands. It happened in brokenness. The Bible says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, 
and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Finally, they saw. They saw the whole story. They saw the purpose of this suffering. But it's not just that in Jesus, God suffers. It's also that in Jesus, God triumphs. In Jesus, God has triumphed over our sin, over our guilt, over our problems, over our death. So that whatever road you're walking down, whatever darkness you're facing, whatever regret you may carry around, defeat does not get the last word. Sin and death don't get the last word. Because this same Jesus who was crucified by Rome did not stay crucified. He was raised up from the dead by God in the greatest act of power in human history. And when he was raised up, suddenly there was a hope available to every human being, a hope that we too can be raised up with him. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now remember, Luke is telling a story here. And he says about this couple, their eyes were opened. Does that phrase ring a bell for anybody? At the beginning of the story of the Bible, there's a couple, Adam and Eve, and somehow the whole story of sin gets folded into their story. One day they defy God. They decide to live without God, apart from God, in rejection of God. And they do this by eating this forbidden fruit. And there's a really interesting phrase there in Genesis. It says, when they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Now that was a horrible opening. Their eyes were now open to see the possibility of sin and darkness and envy and greed and hatred and oppression and guilt and shame and death. Suddenly they could see all the darkness of sin. And then they went into exile. They had to leave the garden, remember? Life away from God. That's our story, the story of the human race. It's why there is sin and sickness and disease in our world. It's why we're living through what we are right now. But it's not the end of the story. Generation after generation, century after century, it's the human condition. Until one day when a stranger came and lived among us and another couple received some other food from the hands of the broken, crucified Son of God. And exactly the same phrase gets used. Then their eyes were opened. Now they could see the suffering love of God and the hope of a risen Savior. You know, they got so excited, I love this, that Luke says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Do you remember how far away Jerusalem was? Seven miles they had just been through a crucifixion. I mean, imagine how exhausted they were. No sleep the night before, been through a resurrection, got an education from Jesus, and now a 14-mile marathon all in one day. But they couldn't help themselves. They have a story now, and they have to tell the story. They have to tell the story. Okay, we'll leave this couple there in Jerusalem to tell their story. Because I want to ask you about your story. I don't know how it's going for you right now, but I know a lot of people are confused, scared, stressed, frustrated, because our world is living in an unprecedented time right now. And even if you're feeling okay about it all, I know this. I know that if you live long enough, you will be disappointed. 
I know that if you live long enough, you will suffer in ways you didn't see coming. And that'll confuse you and make you wonder, where is God? And whose story is this? I've been hoping, but I've been hurt. Or I get so anxious, or I feel so alone. I failed, I gave in again. You know, everybody has to choose what story they're gonna live by. And our world will give you one. You know, a lot of people in our world will tell you, just be successful, right? Go with the success story. It's about what people have always thought it's about, money, power, beauty, health, prestige, status. I think we're seeing right now how fleeting all that can be. And thankfully, a lot of people are hitting a reset button on their priorities. Because the problem with that story, going after money, power, beauty, health, prestige, status, is if you live with that long enough, eventually you'll die. And they'll bury your attractive, successful, wealthy corpse in the ground. And and what do you do then? And what about all the suffering in this sorry, broken world? Now, it has to be something more than a success story. A lot of people in our day will tell you there is no big story. There is no real meaning. I mean, anybody who tries to tell you there is, it's just blowing smoke, just grabbing for power. It all means nothing. You're just a random blob of molecules here by accident. You're around for a little bit, then you're gone. And that's it. Well, the problem with that is, what do you do with hope? What do you do with meaning? You know, for 2,000 years, there has been this other story, a story of hope. And Jesus has been taking the most unlikely little stories and weaving them into his story. Like the story of Jennifer Fulweiler. Check this out. My name is Jennifer Fulweiler. I was a lifelong atheist and I'm now a Christian. I write a blog called Conversion Diary. It's a chronicle of the ups and downs of what it's like to have faith after an entire life of being an atheist. I never believed in God, not even as a child. When my dad would come read books to me at night, I believe I was in fourth or fifth grade, and our nightly reading was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. (laughs) So I was very much raised on a diet of science and reason and evidence-based rational thought. You believe what you can prove. I believe that I have hands because I can see them. I believe in a black hole even though I've never seen one, but you know, science can tell us about the way matter moves around it that we can observe. And so this very rational worldview always made sense to me on a fundamental level. Before I got to the point that I could really start researching faith with an open mind, something had to happen. And for me, that occurred after my first child was born. I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist materialist perspective, he is a collection of randomly evolved chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, that all the love that I feel for him, that it's all nothing more than chemical reactions in our brains. And I looked down at him and I realized that's not true. It's not the truth. I didn't know where to go from there, but that's what prompted me to start researching topics of spirituality. I got my books about Buddhism and you know, and about every religion except for Christianity, basically. I assumed that anything could be true except for Christianity. 
And my husband, who considered himself a non-practicing Christian, said, you might want to start with the one major world religion whose founder claimed to be God. After all, that's a really easy claim to disprove if it's not true. And I thought, well, that's a fair point. I was such a through and through atheist that I have to admit, I was ignorant of all these great Christian thinkers. What about Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> what about Augustine? What about Descartes? I mean, all of these great thinkers throughout history were not only theists, but Christians. And I was really surprised when I actually found these very intellectually rigorous books where people talked about their faith from a place of reason and not a place of emotion. And when I looked at evidence like that on the whole, I started to think something explosive, something world-changing happened in first century Palestine. You have this guy named Jesus who comes from a lower class region, gains a bunch of lower class followers, and ends up being executed by the Romans. And yet in droves, you see thousands and thousands of Jews giving up these traditions that they had held dear for thousands of years. And the people who joined in on this new religion, there was no benefit for them. It was a persecuted religion. People who joined this religion didn't tend to work out too well. They tended to lose social status and often face death. But I wasn't yet you know, convinced and, and ready to become a Christian. And so I started a blog. I just threw out every hard question I could think of. I just put it all out there on the blog. And as I would watch the atheists and the Christians go back and forth and debate, I realized we atheists we don't have the lock on reason that I thought we did. But what I saw with the Christians was they had that too. They had all the knowledge of science and material world that, that we atheists did, but yet they had the total picture of the human experience of love and triumph and hope. And you know they could articulate that in a way that the atheists couldn't. It wasn't until after I had made the intellectual decision to become a Christian that I think I finally believed it in my heart. When I set my pride aside and said, okay, I feel like I'm talking to myself, but Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to know you, even though I don't know how to go about doing that. This peace entered my life, this joy, the way my whole being was transformed there was just no question that this is somebody real. I think that not only am I more alive uh, now that I'm a Christian, but I'm so much more intellectually alive. Finally, nothing is off limits. I can ask questions about science, but I can also ask questions about the spiritual world, and I'm free to really seek the truth. Jennifer was on a road to Emmaus, she didn't know it, but she was. And she was surprised by hope. One day a stranger came alongside of her and said, I'll give you a different story if you want. I'll give you a better ending. And her eyes were opened. For 2000 years now, he's been doing this, this stranger, and he'll do it for you. I don't know what your story is. I know if you live it long enough, it'll take some turns you don't want, you don't expect. So let me offer you a story. You're not here by accident. 
You were made by a God who loves you and cares about you more than you can ever imagine. Your story gets all messed up, all fouled up because our world is all messed up because of this basic problem of sin, of turning away from this God. We get it all wrong and we can't fix it ourselves. We, the human race, got us into this problem, not God. His intent was never to have the brokenness and sickness and disease and death, but we, the human race, rejected all of that at the very beginning. However, God has made a way back to him, a way to a restored life like God intended in the first place, a new Garden of Eden, a place called heaven. If you're feeling hopeless, Jesus stands ready to surprise you with hope today. You see, one day this stranger came along and lived and walked among us. He said things nobody has ever said, and he did things nobody has ever done. He claimed to be the Son of God, God in the flesh, for crying out loud. That's a pretty audacious claim, wouldn't you say? But he proved it by being crucified and then three days later coming back to life. Search the historical records for yourself. There is no body of Jesus anywhere on this earth. There is no corpse anywhere. The bottom line is this. Jesus came to this world for a purpose, to be a suffering servant, to die for our sins. He went to a cross and it looked to the world to be a death like any other death. It looked like it was the end of the story, but it turns out that when he was dying on that cross, he was dying for you. He was dying for me. And there are these rumors, these whispers in our world today that every once in a while, a stranger comes alongside of somebody and says, let me tell you another story. And no matter who you are or what you've done in the past, it's not too late to write a new ending to your story. Your story can be a part of God's story. This Easter, if you want. But the choice is yours. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me and let's pray together. This is just your moment, just between you and God to be alone with him. And I don't know about your story. Maybe you're a Jesus follower and you're doing okay. You're overflowing with hope today and you just want to let him know, God, I'm so grateful. And I have all this anticipation of a future life with you. And I just want to thank you for that. If that's your story, that's great. But maybe your story has taken some turns you didn't think it would take. Maybe your heart has been bearing some hurts you didn't think you were gonna have to carry. Maybe there've been some roads you had to walk down that you didn't think you were gonna have to walk. And now today, a stranger comes to walk alongside of you and tell you of another story, a story of forgiveness story of grace, a story of hope. And he invites you, if you want, to be a part of this story where you walk by faith, live in love, and look forward to being raised up with life with God forever in heaven. If you want that story to be your story, it can be. The Bible says that we are saved, we are rescued from our sins through faith in Jesus and faith alone. And so right now, in the quietness of your heart, in your mind, you can just repeat this. 
Just say, Jesus, I don't want to live my story. I'm putting my trust in your story. I believe that my sin has separated me from a perfect God. But that you came and you lived the life I couldn't live, that perfect life. And then you died on that cross to pay the price in full for my sins. And I believe, I believe that you can forgive me and give me eternal life. And the moment I trust in you, that gift is mine. So right now, I'm trusting in you and you alone, Jesus. And I thank you that nothing can now separate me from your love. Nothing can change that promise that I have forgiveness, I have eternal life because my trust is no longer in myself or in anything I do. My trust is fully in you. And God, for all of us who are Christians who name the name of Jesus as our Savior, we give you thanks and praise for all that you've done. We recognize that our story is a story of suffering. We live in a broken world because in the beginning, sin caused everything to go awry. But you didn't leave us in that mess. You loved us so much that you came down and you became a God who suffers with us. In fact, suffers for us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. So we love you, we thank you, and we praise you this Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.